This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Jack O'Brien, whose latest book is Jack in the Box, or How to Goddamn Direct. It's his second book, the first titled Jack Being Nimble. Jack O'Brien is a three-time Tony Award-winning director, nominated seven times, from 1981 to 2007, was the artistic director of the Old Globe Regional Theater in San Diego. Among the shows he's directed was the 1994 Broadway revival of Damn Yankees, musicals The Full Monty, Hairspray, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, there was Tom Stoppard's The Coast of Utopia, a 2018 revival of Carousel, also Stoppard's The Hard Problem. And according to Wikipedia, this past year, there was the London revival of Hairspray. This book starts out as kind of a guide to how to be a director, but it sounds like as you were writing it, you realized that there actually is no guide, that every show is individual in how you would work. And it turns into anecdotes about various people in the business. So let's talk about how you began to write, when you decided to write it, and what happened while you were writing it. To be honest, Richard, I was sort of backed into this book. The first one, Jack B. Nimble, was in response to an article in the New York Times that said there had never been a repertory company on Broadway, I mean, within the last... 50 years or whatever, and, and after Legallian's civic repertory. And I got a call from Rosemary Harris, uh, who years ago was married to Ellis Rabb, the artistic director of APA, and she was in us with it. And she said, how can they do this? We, we were at the Lyceum Theater for several years. We, we were playing in rep, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, this is really sort of sad that this extraordinary experiment that really launched a lot of and sustained a lot of interesting careers, and even Helen Hayes ended up in that company, that it would just go unnoticed. So I wrote the first book, okay? And that was sort of a memoir, and it was my coming of age in Samoa, if you wish. Then I was thinking, you look at these people. I've had this astonishing fortuitous career where from the likes of Jerry Lewis through Tom Stoppard, including Andrew Lloyd Webber, including Kevin Klein and John Goodman, including Neil Simon and, and Mike Nichols and blah, blah, blah. And I said, if you put all these people, if you put their names down on a piece of paper and said to the ordinary player goer, what do these people have in common? I doubt very seriously if you, if you would occur to you that they all worked with Jack O'Brien. And so I thought, I must owe these people something. Having had this particular perspective, having been virtually in the trenches with them, maybe it's time to put that impression alongside whatever it is I think I may have learned over the years in directing. Because I honestly don't think not only... Do critics not know what a director does? Half the time, I don't think we know what we're doing. 
It's as individual as the, you know, proverbial snowflakes. Nobody does it the same. There isn't one way to do any one thing. So there's some sort of, I don't know, knowledge lore that may be accumulating that makes sense to people when they think, oh, I see that is not so much a profession as it is a guild. I, I like to think of directing like I'd like to talk about, and I don't know anything about it, believe me, goldsmithing or, or sh a cooking, the things where you really have to be there next to the person who's doing it. Because to read an account of it or, or a diagram, it just doesn't compute. And so the book, I mean, I kind of apologize because you're quite right. The book has pretensions of saying, you know, there are aspects to our career that all of us sort of know about. And yet it's always changed by the personalities, the forces, the imagination of the chemical components making up the show. And because I love writers, I respect them. Uh, I'm devoted to them. I think that's really my servitude is in service to getting the writer's work on stage as honestly as possible. I decided to include all these <laughs> crazy, amazing people. Once we get past the initial third of the book, which does deal with what you have to go through in being a director, it turns into these amazing anecdotes of these extraordinary people. I don't want to focus too much on that, though we will come back to it a little bit. But now that I've got you here, I have a whole bunch of questions to ask you as a Broadway director. You've directed plays, you've directed opera, and you've directed musicals on Broadway. Do you ap approach them, any of them, differently? Do you approach them the same way? Is there a difference in how to direct anything? And that would include, say, going from comedy to tragedy. Is there any kind of overall difference? Well, look, one of the things that I'm very often asked is because, because I ran the Globe Theater for 25 years. And what that really means is you choose the seasons, you raise the money, you help raise the money, you know, do it yourself all together. But you do try to put a menu out that your audiences are going to find like a good meal and they're going to come and see all of it. And what happens is fate gets in the way. Somebody gets married. Somebody has get, gets sick. Somebody gets a better job. Somebody's called, I don't know, to Europe. And you're left with a script and no director. And so since you're the artistic director, you pick up the damn thing and do it yourself. And over decades you have this extraordinary ability to dip into a lot of different ideas, a lot of different tropes, a lot of different themes. And more than almost anybody I know of my own generation, I've done that. You're quite right. I've done comedies and tragedies. I've done new plays. I've done revivals. I've done musicals. I've done opera. I've done television. I've had this great opportunity not to have to repeat myself. I'm not a specialist of a Neil Simon comedy. That's not what I do. But I seem to be able to do a hell of a lot of all of it. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was what in the hell is it that I think I'm doing? 
How do I make these decisions? And it's really simple, Richard. If I read a script and it either makes me laugh or cry, it's mine. I can do it. If I don't have a, a gut reaction to the material, I shouldn't go near it. Because could I stage it? Probably. Um, I've had a lot of experience. I know how to do that. But it's not going to live. I'm not going to be good for the actors. I'm not going to be good for the audience. Don't do it for the money. Because the truth of the matter is, it never works out that way. You think, this is going to make a lot of money. It never does. It's the one you think, I don't think anyone's going to come and see this. But I'm having a wonderful time. That's the one you should do. So you know early on exactly, you know, if it's going to hit you or not. And if it doesn't, no matter what, you have to pass on it if you don't understand it, if you don't want to understand it. That's exactly right. I mean, look, at the beginning of your career, you just pray to God that someone will hire you. And, you know, so many times you do say yes to something because in the Joan Rivers sense of the word, there's a space in your calendar that you've got to fill in order to make a living. And so you do a, a silly play like Bell Book and Candle or some boulevard comedy that no longer is relevant. And you inevitably learn something from it. But later in your life, when you, when you actually think, okay, I'm serious about this. This is what I do for a living and I care very much about it. It has to have a resonance. It, has to, it can't just be a job. It's got to be a story that you feel you can bring something to, that you can help in an odd way, clarify, or make funny, or make moving, or you have an idea of saying, God, what if I put this in a charnel house? Wouldn't that be, it's a funny play, but wouldn't it be really funny if there were a lot of dead bodies around? I mean, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just riffing here. But, but that's really where the knife goes in. If you have a great idea, but you can't change the script, and there's something in the script that contradicts your idea, do you push through it? Or do you say, well, I got to change the idea. That won't work. Well, you should. I mean, you have to be very careful about who's zooming who. The play is the play. Now, there are people who do this. And I'm not going to name any names, but you, they're really not hard to figure out. There are people who take a play and twist it to their own purposes. It isn't what the writer meant. It isn't where the writer wants it to be set. But because this particular artist feels passionately about the nature of the story he or she wants to, to tell, they think, look, I can bend it to my will. And some of them are very successful. Uh, it just is not my methodology, and I don't like to do it. And I'm not, I'm not a good audience when I go there and see, I think to somebody, write your own damn play. Jack O'Brien, I want to talk a little about your history. According to Wikipedia, so you're born in 1939 in Michigan. Your first Broadway job was at the Lyceum Theater in New York. How did you wind up with that job? And at that point, did you know you were going to be a director? 
Well, that's a fun question. I was a student at the University of Michigan in the 60s. Uh, I graduated in the 60s, the late 50s and early 60s. That's when I was at University of Michigan. And it was when the sort of regional academic world erupted. Tyrone Guthrie, the great Irish director from Europe, announced that he wanted to start a theater in America. And he didn't want to do it in Los Angeles, and he didn't want to do it in Chicago, and he didn't want to do it in New York. He wanted to do it in the heartland. And so he got immediately invitations. He said that he wanted to go to Minneapolis. He wanted to go to Indianapolis. He wanted to consider Ann Arbor, Michigan, where, in other words, he was looking for cities with, with great academic institutions. And everybody invited him to come except the University of Michigan. I don't know why they didn't, but they didn't. And of course, Guthrie famously went to Minneapolis. They built him a theater. They welcomed him with open arms. And a whole chapter in American theater burst into bloom. And sitting red-facedly in Michigan was the University of Michigan who thought, oops, we should have invited this guy for dinner. I think, frankly, they did finally ask him, but it was too late. And it was clear that they didn't get it. Suddenly, theater was big business in the academic world, and the university had to do something. So they cobbled together a program, a professional theater program, so they too could say, we're doing this as well. And they found this little company of itinerant actors that were going around the country for, for making their living and playing classical plays. This was Ellis Rabb's APA Repertory Company, the Association of Producing Artists. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to do what they wanted. And they were fabulous people. They weren't stars then. But Rosemary Harris, who we married, uh, Nancy Marchand, who ended up on uh, the, the Sopranos, Will Gear, who was the, the, the grandfather of the Waltons. There were fantastic actors that earned their stripes with going around the country and this little company. And if they didn't come to Ann Arbor and become that regional market, that they became the, the titular company at the university. And I'm a, an undergraduate. And I was this, God, I was a pain in the ass. I mean, I, you know, you could not avoid me. I was, I was singing, I was dancing, I was writing musicals. I, you know, I was, I was a mess. But I knew a lot of people there. And so they asked me to go to the fraternities and sell tickets and hawk, hawk this company. So I did that, thinking, hey, maybe they'll hire me as an actor. Now, it turns out that Ellis, who was well, literally gave me the career, didn't like me very much. And he certainly didn't want me as an actor, but I was not stopped. I, I saw these people act. I went to their plays. They were stupefying. I wanted to get into that company. And I did everything possible. I gave them parties. I, I used to, I, I befriended people. I, I did things for free. I, I, at one point, Ellis used me as a rehearsal substitute while he was directing. I did the part for him and learned it for no money. And eventually they gave me a job as assistant to the directors. 
And I took, a, at that point, I was in New York City. I was teaching at Hunter College. I was making about 500 bucks a, 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 a year, a, a month. That was my stipend. He cut it in half. I was getting 250 for a month. I could barely get through it. But I took notes for Ellis Rabb, John Hausman, Eva Legallion, Alan Schneider, the great seminal directors of their time. And eventually, they gave me a play. And so in 1969, after I'd been in that company, being the apprentice, the sorcerer's apprentice for six years, they finally gave me a play. It was Sean O'Casey's Cockadoodle Dandy. And we did it in Ann Arbor. And then it finally got onto the stage in New York. And that was my debut. So by that time, the blood was flowing and I was a cooked goose. I was going to be doing this whether anybody liked it or not. Well, Jack O'Brien, along came a musical which closed after five performances that you wrote the book and lyrics to called The Selling of the President, 1972. There you are, and it's your baby. How do you feel about going into it and then flopping and there were there are a couple other flops how do you deal with those emotionally there's a parallel story here while i was at michigan i befriended one of the great jazz pianists of our generation bob james uh, we both were dating the same girl he married her eventually and the three of us became incredibly close I was determined to write musical theater at that point. Bob was a jazz artist, didn't give a damn one thing or the other, but I needed somebody who could put notes down on paper. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So we became a little team there and we wrote musicals at Michigan. And one of them, the, the very first one, Land Ho, won the best collegiate musical of 1961. And through it, we got a publisher in New York and an agent and they, they had, there was this play called The Selling of the President, and they asked us if, they, if we would write a couple of jingles, like fight songs, for, for this character, George Mason, who was the, the candidate that they were supposedly Nixon. And we did. The songs were pretty good, if I say so myself. So they asked for some more. And we finally ended up in San Francisco at, at, at Bill Ball's Theater, with my mentor, Ellis Rabb, directing the show. He fired the book writer because he couldn't deal with that guy. And at the end of the run, they said, would you put the book together so as a record of what we did? I did. They said, oh, God, you can write pretty good. You'll be the book writer. So now I'm not only writing the lyrics for these songs, I'm the book writer. Then we go to Philadelphia, and they fire the director. And they say, the producer says, either Hal Prince or Michael Bennett are coming in next week. They're abroad right now. One of them is going to do it. No, they weren't. They didn't want to do this damn show. So in the interim, while we're waiting to find out whether they're going to bite or not, I go to work with the actors. And the actors had a, had, had a terrible time with the director. So they were crazy about me. Well, why don't you direct it, they said. So, and then the last thing that happened is the lighting designer gets hepatitis. So by the time we get to the Schubert Theater in New York, I'm not only the lyricist, I'm the book writer and the director and the lighting designer. I mean, talk about rats leaving a sinking ship. The show had no advance. 
the show wasn't very good. Although I've got to tell you in truth, every year somebody comes to me who has heard the music and says, we should revive this. And I'm thinking, no, you shouldn't. No, please don't do this. It closed in five days. It was brutal. It was brutal. You either get through it and go on. If you'll notice, I never wrote another musical. So I found a parallel path. I did, you know, have something to offer. I did have some leap of faith about this work that, that said I can do this. But I never went back and did that again. But that brings up a question. At what point? I mean, I once interviewed Carol Channing, and she said that there was a certain point before getting to Broadway when suddenly everything would click and they knew they had a hit. And then there were shows, of course, that never did. At what point do you realize, oh, my God, this is a turkey. It's going to be savaged by the critics, but I got to go on. What do you do? You go on. I mean, as I'm fond of saying, nobody intentionally starts out to do bad work. Unfortunately, you lose your objectivity. When you get in the room with the people you're working with, this is all about belief. This is all about, we can make you think this is wonderful. This little band of people can sell this story in a way that you will never forget it. And the world is full of those moments when they did leap into flame and people said, my God, this is a great show. But it's just as often they don't ignite. And you, that's your baby. That is your, your creation. You don't abandon it. You, you think, if I just write one more funny idea here, if I just make a better song there, if I just figure out a way to finish that act, we'll be okay. And there are in the world stories when that sort of happened, but you don't tell them very often. Jack O'Brien, is there any show that flopped that you worked on that even now you go, I don't know why it flopped? Oh, boy. Well, it's been a long career. It's hard for me to remember. There are several that I thought were better than they were received. Yes, that's true. Let me give you an example. I think one of the best shows I ever did was The Full Monty. But it was the same season as The Producers. So The Producers swept up everything in the world, including best show, best musical, best score. Now, nobody sings those songs anymore from The Producers. It was an illusion. It was a great illusion. It was a fantastic success. But the show doesn't get revived. Because if you don't have Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane, you know, those two phenomenal stars, it doesn't really work. And one of the best musicals, I think, of the last century was The Full Monty. And that does get done all the time. History proves that we did have a better musical because it has, in fact, endured. When you're working on Damn Yankees, uh, you talk about it in in Jack in the Box. When Jerry Lewis came on board, we hear stories now about the difficulty of working with him. 
obviously you were apprehensive and it turned out okay. But when you look back on it, how do you think about it? Because I saw that show and despite everything else, I felt that when he did his shtick in Those Were the Good Old Days, I kind of felt like he destroyed the play. Oh, yeah? That's interesting. I didn't. I mean, I felt, first of all, that was a turn. The Good Old Days is a vaudeville song. It's a classic vaudeville song. And it's patterned the way those songs have always been done in the, since the 1900s. Jerry was a repository of that information, of that skill. He had tricks that he could do that we've forgotten how they even happen. And he had an opportunity. I mean, the audience didn't come to see the show necessarily. They came to see Jerry Lewis. So if you're really clever, you should be able to do both things. Give them the show. And then if it isn't too much of a problem, give them a little Jerry Lewis. He was so responsible to every single thing we did up to that moment in that song, The Good Old Days, that I could not possibly not help him celebrate a lifetime of vaudeville tradition. Now, you're right when you say it was out of skew because he was no longer the devil. He was Jerry Lewis entertaining an audience. But there's something kind of evil and devilish about that as far as I'm concerned. I think if the devil had any talent, he could do the same damn thing. Interesting when you talk, Jack O'Brien, about The Hard Problem by Tom Stoppard. I saw a production here, and I realized everybody went to see a Tom Stoppard play. Uh, we didn't worry about the title, The Hard Problem, which is why I think he was right in saying, just do the play. Well... That's showbiz. Yeah, this is when I say to you, there's no right way to do this. There's no one uh, answer. If you can prove it, if you can make it work, if you can make Jerry Lewis work, if you can step off your ego and let the play speak for itself instead, if the audience buys it, you're as right as anybody else. What was it like working with Sondheim on Firth on The Doctor Is Out, which became Getting Away With Murder? And was that a show that goes back to the idea of I'm going to just push ahead? Or how do you think about it today? Well, I laugh at it because actually Steve and I remained extremely good friends till the end. I didn't do a lot of his work. I didn't do anything but that show. But we're we're neighbors. We'd been neighbors up here in Connecticut for you know, the better part of a de decade and a half. And uh, we had frequent meals together and we entertained and w I, I adored him. I, I just adored him. But it, it fell into my hands as an accident. It was a jeu. It was a game that he and George were playing. George was in Los Angeles and Steve was here and they would throw the, the script back and forth across the country. And they would write certain things, then the other guy would take them out and put something else in, and they had a hell of a good time doing it. It makes me laugh, Richard, because these days when Steve's work is so celebrated and every single thing he's done has been exhumed and reapportioned and you know, even the shows that 
have never been successful are now thinking maybe they are successful. You know, merrily we roll along. Maybe it is going to finally make it this last time through. Nobody mentions getting away with murder. It ran 17 weeks in New York. Nobody mentions it. Uh, It's my, my little tiny claim to fame in that panoply of a great career. I did do that one show and nobody remembers it. Nobody wants to see it and it doesn't work. It makes me laugh with affection. Did you know it didn't work while you were? Yes, I did. Oh, no, 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 I did. I knew. I mean, we got away with it in San Diego. Then we brought it into New York. And there was this this joke that Steve thought was hilarious. That at the end of the first act, John Rubenstein, playing the leading role, pulls out a gun and shoots everybody on the stage. Bang. Curtain comes down. The end of the first act. So the audience goes, oh, I think, what the hell's going on? How are they going to do a second act? Second act, curtain goes up. They replay that moment again, and it's like a, a, a fantasy. And half the audience every night would go, ha, 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 and half the audience would go, oh, no. And we never recovered. By this time, we're all in New York doing the show. Steve's up here in Connecticut, and I say, you got to come in and look at this because we've got to fix it. He says, I can't work in New York any longer. I can only work up here. George Firth comes to see the show every night, sees the first act, which is really kind of good, goes up to the stage management office and starts to type up his notes and never sees the second act. So I'm stuck in this show with two writers who refuse to sit with me in the show and look at what's going on. You can't win that hand. What's the story behind the oldest living Confederate widow tells all? I'm getting credit for that. And, I, you know, that really pains me. I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Really? No. I was the artistic director at the Globe when they snagged that show. I was actually, was, I was almost leaving the Globe at that point. I did not pick that show. It came in. It was an absolute disaster. And I'm credited over and over again with one of the shows, one of the big disasters of my life. I never had anything to do with it. Here's something else that I get credited with. I'm a producer that produced a lot of August Wilson's work. No, I wasn't. I was the artistic director at the Globe, which like another seven or eight theaters in the country, we did all of August's work. But I, that had nothing to do with me. I was just on the bill. Did you spend time with August Wilson at all or no? Yes, yes, of course. We did Joe Turner's Come and Gone. We did the piano lesson. We did you know several of the plays. And he was there when they because he was working all the time with Lloyd Richards, the great late Lloyd Richards. And, and Lloyd was a friend of mine. And uh, it was a great honor to have him at the theater. And I spent every moment I could possibly uh, distract him talking to him and, and extolling him, frankly. What was he like? Quiet, gentle, uh, a little shy, a little diffident. He was carrying that enormous anticipatory burden with him of knowing what he wanted to do and would he have the time to do it. And it was early in the diversity movement here in the country. So, you know, it wasn't what it is now. So he was, he was a warrior with his own band, his own march, 
his own catalog. I thought he was a, he was a, a, an elegant, very very kind, considerate gentleman. It was a great great privilege to have him there at the theater. Jack O'Brien. We're going to move on to the pandemic. How did it affect you? And do you see theater coming fully back? What are you looking at? Oh, you know, we're such children. We're such egotists. We think it's all about us. It's always been this way. Shakespeare had pandemic after pandemic. They closed the theaters then, too. I'm sure Aeschylus had the same problem. You know, they were outside in the cold and... They couldn't do the Oresteia on Thursday. There's a reason Broadway's been called the, the Magnificent Invalid, because it's always dying, and it's always surprising. The pandemic has been devastating, no question about it. The tourists stopped coming. Uh, the masks closed us down. But it belongs somehow to us in our imaginations. We need to confront human beings behaving in a way that teaches us the meaning and the value of life. And although there are other ways of doing it, somehow the most compelling is the theater. Why do you think that is? I think if somebody stands in front of you and pretends to know something you don't know, you are compelled to listen. I think we're all wondering how we're doing as opposed to someone else. Is somebody having better sex than I am more frequently? Somebody making better money than I'm making? Are they more successful? Why? Why can't I? Those kinds of lessons are life lessons. And when there's somebody in the same room as you, going through the motions, you pay attention. One other thing that's come up in the past few years, along with diversity following on the heels of George Floyd, is the Me Too reckoning. As you look back on the, your career, was theater as bad as Hollywood? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we're only now catching a glimpse of ourselves in an historical mirror. And we realize to what degree, I mean, you know, in Shakespeare's time, boys played women's parts. Can you imagine? There's a great line of, of Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra, some boy squeaking my, what does she say? Some, some boy actor squeaking my whatever. In other words, even, even he as a writer, put that idea in the mouth of a man playing a woman. I, I, I now speak to people much younger than me who don't know that women of my generation were regularly hit on to get a job. That, that the idea of somebody pawing them or making a lewd, a, a, a lewd remark or a suggestive idea that you don't get the job unless you, that was de rigueur in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, now with the Me Too movement, uh, with the, the onrush 
of talented women who are now not only directing, but our executives are making choices. It's a brand new thing. It's also true with diversity. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're hearing voices. We're hearing music that we've never heard before, made by races, made by personalities that never had a voice, never had a seat at the table. It's humbling. It really is. I've been moved aside as a, a white director of certain age. There are younger people, much more diverse than me, that get the first call now. And rightly so, may I say. It's tough. It pisses me off. And it thrills me. I mean, also, there's ageism involved as well. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Why don't you hit me while I'm down, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's absolutely true. I don't know too many people my age who are still working. I think I actually think that's true. Dan Sullivan and I, uh, I think we're the same age, and we've known each other, you know, over the over generations. We're very close friends and great co co uh, colleagues. I adore him, but he's working and I'm working, and I don't. Th I think. Everybody else is younger than we are. Pretty, pretty sure they are. Do you think we'll ever see Stephen Sondheim's last musical? Or is that dead in the water now that he's gone? I would hope so. I mean, who would have the audacity to finish it? I don't think anybody wants to take that on. No. Writers write, directors direct, composers compose. He ended up on his feet doing and stewarding the best work that he had done, making sure that he was getting revived. It was an extraordinary career. But it doesn't mean that every single thing he did ranks. And more did than didn't. But that last piece that they worked on had three or four different titles and three or four different chances. And then, you know, they, he was working on... Yet another piece um, that never saw, never even got to, I think it got to a reading. I think they did a reading of some of it. But Steve did his work at the last possible minute. So that was, that was a really difficult situation. David Ives, a wonderful, wonderful writer, was paired with him at the end. And David would write, you know, scenes. And Steve would toy with it, but inevitably he found his way through the music just at the last possible gasp. It made people crazy. But I had an example of that happening with me when I was working with David Yazbek on uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I wanted a finale where they, the two guys sang together. And he didn't see it. And I kept saying, you can't do this. I've got to, we were in tech rehearsal. And I was saying, I want you, please, please let them sing together. I want them to sing dirty, rotten, sky, something. And he couldn't see it. And I said to my musical director at the time, am I going to get that song? And he said, there are two kinds of composers. One that can do anything you want, just that they write it. And the other one can only do it when he feels it. And he said, I think you'll get it. And I did. It was a great number. But it was, it, 
it clocked in, believe me, at 11.59, if you know what I mean. Jack O'Brien, what is Great Scott? Uh, according to IMDb, it's a film from last year. No, no. It's an opera. Uh, the late Terence McNally and Jake Heggie, the composer, who had done a very successful, one of the most successful contemporary operas we have called Dead Man Walking. Uh, they wrote a piece called Great Scott for Joyce Giordano, the brilliant mezzo-soprano, who's recently been one of the three women in the hours at the Met. Joyce is a genius. And they wrote, they wrote an opera for her. And we went to Dallas and put it on. I had a wonderful time. Terence was not completely well at the time and holding on to a lot of determination to keep rewriting. But unfortunately, a musical and an opera are very different. A musical you can change literally overnight. Or you can come in with another song. But an opera, you can't. It needs a symphonic orchestra. It needs orchestration. It needs a lot of low, slow prep. And he was not happy with the story. And Jake, they had difficulty ending the opera. But God, we had a fun time doing it. And Joyce sang the daylights out of it. No, what, what did I say? It was a movie? No, no, no. Broadway, a lot of people complain about corporate musicals and musicals that seem to have been created for the money. Do you see Broadway that way? You know what? It's a variegated ribbon we're talking about. It's blue for a while, and then it goes to green, and then it goes to orange. In other words, the only thing we know is it's not going to stay the same. At the moment, we're in mourning because our, our giant composer brain, Stephen Sondheim, has left us. But in the, in the, at the moment... No one has stepped in to take his place. There was a period of time when in the 30s and the 40s, the Broadway musical was how a composer, contemporary composer, showed his or her wares. Cole Porter, Gershwin, Rodgers and Hammerstein, all of them. Then what happened is they were replaced by the troubadours. And the troubadours people like Paul Simon, James Taylor, Carly Simon, they went into a recording studio and, and didn't need to go on stage. They interpreted their own music. And one of the last people to hang on from that tradition of Broadway was Steve Sondheim, who was a lyricist for, for Bernstein and even Dick Rogers for a while. He's the end of that extraordinary situation. Now we have somebody like Lynn manuel Miranda, who's, who's completely different. And here comes Hamilton. Will there be another one of those? I frankly can't imagine it. But he's so talented, he himself will change because he has something to say. Jack O'Brien, I've talked to a lot of directors over the years, and I get somewhat different responses. You've done a lot of Shakespeare. Yes, I have. 
What do you think is the purpose and how should an audience perceive the setting? Uh, for instance, Richard III set in the 1930s or another play set in a different time. Is that for the director? Is it for the audience? How much is we as an audience, how much are we supposed to pick up on something like that? It's such an interesting question because the truth of the matter is the word that immediately leaps into dimension is relevance. And people are, are directors and producers are always saying, I'd like to make this much more relevant to what's going on today. And of course, they don't change the language. They don't change a word of what Shakespeare writes. But sometimes when you put people in mafia costumes or you put them into Edwardian uh, costumes or something a little closer to our own world, it does make an audience sit up and not feel, I'm not going to understand this, Louisa, am I? Which is basically what we all sort of humbly think when we come to see Shakespeare. Oh my God, it's going to be over my head. Oh my God, it's in poetry. I'm, I'll never understand it. Um, it's not true. The language, yes, the art language is archaic. Uh, it is by and large in blank verse, which doesn't really mean anything to the audience. It actually makes it easier to learn, curiously enough, that it's in a form that's sort of comfortable to the brain. I don't understand why, but it's true. But the truth of the matter is, is the stories come through with clarity. And because he was one hell of a dramatist, he really knew human beings. He really knew suffering. He knew love. He knew loss. And he was well, what was he? I mean, that argument of it, did he write the, the plays or did someone else? I guess it doesn't matter to me. I mean, they exist, don't they? Right. You know, we, we keep doing them. So it's sort of a silly argument because people really do respond. I mean, is there a better evening than sitting in front of a production of Hamlet? No, I'm afraid there really isn't because it's just those characters and the language and what they do and the excitement and the ghosts and all the rest of it. My God, it's, it's just gorgeous stuff. But we try to make it more comfortable and think that by bringing it closer to our own period, it's going to explain some things to people that they might not get. Maybe that's true. I mean, maybe it is true. What about what it does for you, does it help you understand the play more by suddenly setting it that way? Let me just give you an example. Romeo and Juliet, a play that I think most of our listeners have some experience with, or some version of it at least. It's been around, you know, for 500 years. There are really interesting things about Romeo and Juliet that I learned as I was preparing it, as I was being helped by dramaturges and uh, other sort of people reading uh, their opinions and what they had found out. It's a mercantile play. It's not a play about royalty. It's a play about real people. And it's about people who make a living in business, basically. The, the fathers, the parents of Romeo and Juliet, they're working people. 
And one of the things that, that we don't know about, that we've not heard about so much, is how many, in, the, in that period of time, how many children, how many women died in childbirth. It was astonishing. The interesting thing about the Capulets, Julia's parents, is that the father is much, much older than the mother. The mother tells us that she was, what, 13, 12 years old when she had Juliet. So she was a, virtually almost a child herself, closer in, in age to her daughter than her husband. Now, what we don't know is how many wives did Capulet have before this story? Because clearly, being a mercantile man and having a fortune, he needed a son. We know at that time, you could not leave your money to a girl. You had to leave it to a, an heir, a boy. If you're going to keep your fortune, you have to have a son. And that's the job. And in the case of, of Lady Capulet, she had this little baby. And then for all intents and purposes, she closed her legs and said, that's it. I'm not dying anymore. She's closer to her cousin, to, to uh, her relatives in age. They're all younger. The men in the family are older. Now, look, when you learn that, you think, that's pretty damned interesting. No wonder she's having to marry at 12 or 13, because younger girls simply were stronger. And you had a chance of not only having a son, but maybe you could get another child if you didn't get a boy the first time. That is the world of that play. And frankly, it helps to know that. So if you're going to change the period, you have to be very careful that you don't cancel out a societal trope that doesn't apply, let's say, to people in modern life now, because we don't have that problem right now. So a whole resonance of the play goes away. I don't mean to sort of wander off track here, but I'm saying basically it's a long stretch of information and you have to figure out what story, what aspect of the story you want to talk about and what you want your audience to understand. And that's an aspect that I have not seen in any production, actually, that I've seen of Romeo and Juliet, including the films. Yeah, curiously enough, we know in terms of royalty that the royalty passes from boy to boy to boy until you get quite, quite late in recent times that now a queen like the late Queen Elizabeth could, in fact, inherit. And, and you, it's acceptable. But it wasn't for many, many generations. Uh, that's part of the problem. And since that was established with kings and governments, it translated to the mercantile society. Now, look, you don't have to do that. You don't have to, you don't have to do any of that if you're doing a production as, let's say, West Side Story. It doesn't have anything to do with that. That whole aspect of societal mores, how it applies to the breeding of children and the passing off of a fortune, that's not in that musical at all. So you can take it out. My great mentor, Ellis Rabb, 
always took the politics out of any Shakespeare show he did because he didn't, it didn't interest him. One more question then concerns cutting Shakespeare. Now, obviously, we can't cut copyrighted material, but Shakespeare can be cut. Things could be moved around. Songs can be added, obviously. Behoove you as a director to, say, look at a play of Shakespeare and go, you know, I want to concentrate on this. I don't want to concentrate on that. I'm going to cut here and cut there. Uh, Is that how you would work then? Absolutely. Everybody does. I mean, first of all, these scripts, the folios that came down to us, are basically not in his hand. They came through the, I don't know, historic stage management plan. Somebody wrote them down. You know, in, in that period, you didn't get a complete script. You got your sides. You got your lines and your cues. Uh, there's a wonderful line in <clears throat> Miss Heaven Ice Dream when they're working on the, the play with the, the, the mechanicals play. And I think Bottom says at one point, he speaks his lines, cues and all, without stopping. In other words, it was all on a piece of paper. What you say to me and how I respond. And I'm learning my lines and I have the cues that what you, you as an, my actor with me in the scene is going to say to me. But none of us have the entire play. The stage management would have the play. The owner of the theater would have the whole play. There is, in fact, a list of it. But it gets, what, cut, changed, interpolated? Shakespeare himself, who worked in that company, changed things. There are passages in Hamlet. If you do an uncut Hamlet, you do this play a big disservice because he changed his mind as the play evolved. And there are two soliloquies that cannot exist in the same play. How all occasions do inform against me, uh, which happens late in the play when he looks at Fortinbras. You can't do that if you do an earlier version, because it, 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 time jumps away. He made, he made edits. In other words, we don't know anything about the actual purity of any of these scripts. But in the words of John Gielgud, when they said, Sir John, are you going to cut this? He said, yes, he wouldn't mind, which I love. And in that way, it's comforting to that, yeah, he probably wouldn't mind. Like, yeah, that's boring. Let's get rid of it. Jack O'Brien, after the pandemic, you worked on Hairspray, London Revival. What do you have coming up? I've got a musical called Shocked as in corn. It's about corn. It is one of the most exciting projects I think I've ever been offered because it features music by two composers from Nashville, which we have not had on the Broadway stage before. They are giants in their own industry, but we don't know them on the street here yet. Brandy Clark and Shane McAnally. So it's an original score. Robert Horn, who won a Tony last season for Tootsie, has done a book which is not based on anything. It's an original story. And I've got a handful of the damnedest singing actors you've ever seen in your life, none of whom yet are stars. But I guarantee by the 4th of April when we open, they will be. In New York, on Broadway. 
at the Niederlander Theater on the, on the 4th of April, Shucks will be born. And I can't tell you what fun it's been. We did a workshop uh, over a year ago at the O'Neill Experimental Lab. And then we took it out to the Pioneer Theater in Salt Lake City in front of all the Mormon community. It's, it's a pretty funny musical. And we put it up on its feet and worked on it for six weeks out there. We have put our money where our mouth is. We have brand new, fresh talent. And it is the funniest show I have ever had anything to do with. Jack O'Brien, finally, uh, you going to be doing another book. Oh, am I? Maybe. I had an awfully good time doing this one. We'll see. You know, the one thing in the theater, you never say never. You've been listening to an interview with Jack O'Brien, whose book is titled Jack in the Box or How to Goddamn Direct. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.